Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. In this Weeds episode, we are going to talk with one of the most provocative and effective cannabis activists of the modern era, someone who has engineered and executed confrontational street protests, including, but not limited to, planting cannabis seeds on the lawn of DEA headquarters, more on that later, giving away 10,000 joints at the inauguration of former President Trump, getting a bunch of people to dress up in Star Wars costumes, and giving away cannabis clones in what was, of course, called the March of the Clones. This person has also gotten arrested dozens of times, fighting for our basic freedoms, and that includes chaining himself to the fence outside the White House and many, many more provocative street pranks. My guest, Adam Eidinger, also opened an influential, politically active head shop in his home city of Washington, D.C., called Capital Hemp, and he kept it open despite being raided by the police, and he is, of course, best known as the organizer and driving force behind Initiative 71, which legalized cannabis in the nation's capital, legalized it, and more recently, he helped pass a separate voter initiative to legalize psychedelic plants, including magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, and mescaline. But yeah, <laughs> did I mention that he planted cannabis seeds on the front lawn of DEA headquarters? Dianu, it would have been enough, Adam. Now, before we delve into my enlightening and entertaining conversation with the clown prince of cannabis, I want to pump the brakes just for a second to say a huge thank you to everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon. You are keeping us on the air so we can share these incredible stories with people around the world and inspire them to similarly rise up against the war on drugs, free the weed from persecution, and have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. If you want to throw in on this shit, it's easy. Just go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and you can sign up for as little as $1. You'll get tons of bonus content, including the video version of this podcast I'm waving at you right now, plus access to our special secret sessions, and you'll get ad-free versions of every episode. Check it out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and you can put five on it, or for just a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, mailed directly to your door. Maybe I'll throw a zip of weed in. Probably not. I guess I will only do that where the law allows, which is nowhere, so no free zip of weed, but a beautiful book mailed right to your door and that good, good feeling that comes from throwing in on this shit and helping us spread the good word about weed. Also, please, if you don't have the green energy right now to share some money, totally understood, but what you can do is tell your friends who love weed about this podcast. Our free speech rights are getting squashed and throttled and snuffed and yup, peanut buttered every single day and i gotta tell you nobody seems to give a shit about me and my free speech rights uh so i need you to help 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 i'm being repressed we absolutely do rely on your wait for it grassroots level word of mouth to spread this podcast far and wide thank you for doing that also a few upcoming events to let you know about first <laughs> 
<laughs> and we'll see how this goes. But I am going to be at Burning Man this year. I'll actually be working for the organization that runs the event. So if you're going to be out on the playa this year, please hit me up. Info at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. I'm going to be on site for almost three weeks, and it is only my second time going to Burning Man. So, yes, I definitely love to meet some cool people out there. Let's connect and take a bike ride or just chill at camp. Also, September 7th through 8th, immediately after Burning Man, I'm heading directly to Humboldt County. I'll still have dust all over me. Uh, <laughs> Playa dust, not the, not the other kind. Uh, calm down, humble county. Uh, I'm gonna be right in America's Weed Basket where I'll be hosting some cannabis trivia contests at an event called Canifest. That's September 7th and 8th. So if you live in the area, lucky you. Or you're looking for an incredible weekend trip at the start of harvest season, please come say hi. And don't worry, even though I'm going to be at Burning Man for about three weeks, I'm currently, as in this current, when I'm recording this, not necessarily when you're hearing this. Those are two different times in the ever-evolving time-space continuum. Uh, But (laughs) as of this moment, I'm very hard at work getting a bunch of new episodes of this podcast edited and ready to publish, so we will absolutely stay on schedule with a new episode every week Weedness Day for our Patreon subscribers and every other Weedness Day on the podcast feed where you found this episode. But, uh, you know, enough about the time-space continuum. Let's settle into this moment that we are sharing uh, and get ready for my interview with the one and only, the inimitable Adam Eidinger. Personally, I've got a nice pod tone ready to puff. This is a full throttle episode, and I'm going to uh, inhale some beautiful, pure rosin to get going. But I'm hearing through the tentacles of the octopus that controls our consciousness and tethers us to each other and the universe at large that you yes you yes absolutely actually you not just the general you but you the specific you listening to these words you're not as lit as you'd like to be to endeavor on this shared adventure and you are getting a little nervous about it and i'm just gonna say what i always say it's cool just chill All you have to do is hit pause, and you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to eat as much edibles as you deem wise and not one edible more because my promise to you is that when you are where you want to be and you hit unpause and you are ready we'll in turn also be ready for another great moment in weed history Adam, 
what is happening. It is a thrill and an honor to have you on Great Moments in Weed History. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's been a while since I've done a serious interview, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, we're definitely going to have an interview. I think we'll get a little serious, but uh, we'll get silly too as the subject uh, warrants. But we like to start all of our interviews here on the program by asking, when did cannabis first come into your life? I was prepared for this. It was uh, in 1986 on New Year's Eve in Australia. I was a recent uh, bar mitzvah and my bar mitzvah present to myself was to go to Australia and visit my cousins. I met another 13-year-old who said, they're growing weed in the backyard here at this house. And by the way, I have some. Have you ever tried it? I didn't really get into it, though, until college. Yeah, I remember it being a little bit difficult for me to process what was happening. It really was like the third time that I had gotten high at that same age that I swore it off because I got too high. And I was like, this is interfering with my life. I'm just 13 years old. And I didn't touch it again until I was 19 and in college. And uh, and I was pretty anti-marijuana in high school. I was in a band and I I told my fellow band members that if they got high before our sessions, we played about a hundred shows in three years. And I said, if you got high before our shows or anything and you made a mistake, I was like, not going to perform. It was very confusing. And when I finally got away from Pittsburgh where I was growing up and I moved to Washington, DC, I had, had all, I had someone from Hawaii teach me all about cannabis. Like it's like starting over, you know, and uh, that's why you go to college, I guess. Yeah, broaden those perspectives, expand the <laughs> mind. Uh, shout out to all the Pakalolo smokers in Hawaii. Yeah. You can find more on the uh, Hawaiian cannabis scene in our episode about former President Obama and the Chum Gang, uh, his his high school weed crew. It sounds like you got some of that passed down Hawaiian weed knowledge. Let us know the moment where you realized, oh, wow, I, I was wrong about this. And, and this is something that I want to help change for other people. That's a great question. I realized it in, in college. Arnold Trainbeck was teaching at American University alternative approaches to drugs and uh, for drug policy. And it was coming from a libertarian perspective. I was raised in a democratic blue collar household union, both parents in unions so I had a perspective of the world that was sort of t slanted progressive or, or liberal, uh, but I was really vibing on these freedom people who were talking about that, you know, you shouldn't people, people, people put people in prison, that this is worse than the substances themselves. Uh, this is more disruptive to someone's life than any drug. And um, if someone is uh, abusing drugs, uh, any substance for that matter, um, there ought to be intervention. There ought to be uh, services available if they want them. And I was like, this is so practical, you know. I got an internship on Capitol Hill in uh, 1992. Congressman, this Democratic congressman, Peter Deutsch from South Florida, who was very conservative Democrat. He was also the top fundraiser for that cycle and was flying on Air Force One a lot with the president. He was buddies with Bill Clinton. In 92 to 93, they were writing the 94 crime bill. I really was like eventually trusted with a, a bunch of portfolios, Israel, Greece, and the crime bill. And uh, I went to the White House for a meeting on the crime bill. It was a big meeting. Congressional staff from all over the Hill were there. 
and it was Joe Biden walked out and it was like a big rally that we're going to pass all these new death penalty crimes and we're going to increase penalties for all crimes. And I, I was really not feeling it. I, I, was, I was like, wait, this is Democrats? I thought this is what the Republicans do. Why is this? And they're like, this is how we hold our majority in Congress against the Republicans in the midterms is that we outflank them on the drug war and we, we get tougher on crime than they've ever been. And I, I was disgusted kind of by, I just, I just knew this was going to result in people going to jail for longer prisoner sentences. And I, I got out of uh, working in government. <laughs> I do want to ask yeah. quickly now, now the first ever episode of this podcast was about Willie Nelson smoking a joint on the roof of the white house. I have to ask as a young daily weed smoking intern, were you ever at least high uh, on the job in, in these hallowed halls of power? Absolutely. Yes. I did smoke uh, in my little secret office and I would usually do it late at night after like a long day of working. Like I would, I promised myself I would just be productive and use it as a reward. I learned that from my friend from Hawaii. Uh, and I realized, you know, I, you know, I have to find a job. So I got a job working for a Jewish public relations firm. Uh, this guy, Steve Rabinowitz, who used to be Bill Clinton's image maker. And I learned, I learned from one of the best public relations, uh, strategists in the country. And in 98, Ethan Nadelman was a client from the Drug Policy Alliance. And it was for medical cannabis in Washington, D.C. Now, this was a ballot initiative that passed, I think, by 57%. We didn't know the outcome of the election because the U.S. Congress was preventing District of Columbia from even counting the votes. And it took a lawsuit and a judge's order to eventually count the votes. But then Congress passed budget rider and they stopped it from becoming law. And for, I think it was a total of 12 and a half years, that did not become law. And eventually when it did become law, DC rewrote the medical cannabis laws. We basically did election night outreach to all of the media outlets in the country, especially radio, and got Ethan on the radio talking about the significance of, I believe it was seven, seven states had ballot initiatives that night, including the District of Columbia, that all passed. And it was like, holy crap, not, it's not just California, it's now a movement. And I was there for all that. I really got to see it from you know the executives, the people, people who are 20 years older than me, I, I got to hear the messaging. I got to develop the messaging with them. I got to, I was pitching it to producers all over the country saying, you know, put them on the air. And uh, we got the guy for you. He's an expert. He'll talk about it. Okay. So I was doing this media work and I started to realize like, I really like working on drug policy. I learned about it in college. I'm doing this drug policy work and I meet, and they're so appreciative of the work I'm doing. I'm like, they're so much nicer than some of these other clients, you know, like they really like what we're doing. And I, and I was still using cannabis like every day and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So I was like, I got to work on this. So I pitched my boss on a new organization, the Marijuana Policy Project. I said, yeah, it's a brand new organization. They don't have a publicist. They don't have a press person and we could do it part time. And, you know, it'd be my first client that I bring in. So Rob Campia and Chuck Thomas, who are two of the three founders, you know, met with them and we came up with a plan on the Institute of Medicine report that came out in 1999, which was the breakthrough. Like the Institute of Medicine says cannabis is medicine. Like if the, this is a nonpartisan, independent body. It's here in Washington. They're, now they're saying it. And we were able to get literally 
every newspaper in America to put it on the front page. We got every morning talk show to put our people on, sometimes debating, sometimes by themselves. But suddenly, for the first time in my lifetime, the country was talking about cannabis reform and cannabis was medicine at a national level in a very serious way. And I realized I understood this business now. I could do it on my own. What is your weed life like at this point? And, and you know, we, we do on this program, I kind of like to tie these historical eras to the weed of the time. So if you can remember, you know, what you were smoking, how you were obtaining it, and and what it was like, okay. you know, uh, in the context of modern cannabis, uh, that will fill in some details for us. I, lo I love this question. Uh, so from 1997 to 2001, this period we're talking about, till 9-11, my dealer was an aspiring physical therapist who was still in school. I got whatever he had. As long as it didn't smell like ammonia, that was all I cared about. And ammonia was a real problem back then because we would be like in, you know, in bales floating in the ocean for months or something. <laughs> and by the time you get it, it's like, oh, this is horrible. It would get you high though, right? So yeah, it was very low standards. I hadn't met an artisanal grower yet in my life. I did grow in college, and it was a disaster. In, in, in 2000, though, I was real popular among the anti-globalization movement because I would bring weed to meetings, and I would smoke in meetings as a protest. On, I was like, I would bring the drug war into that movement, and I just made sure cannabis was represented, and I would always get support. People were very supportive because they were also looking at the policing, and there was a, nar a racial narrative as well around policing of mar of cannabis marijuana and I just want to get to the key moment though where I really became a cannabis activist and it was because David Bronner <laughs> from the Dr. Bronner's the organic soap company was a supporter a small supporter you know maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars a year not a lot of money to a group called the Drug Reform Coordination Network run by David Borden and David Borden had hired me to do public relations work on the Higher Education Act drug provision which was also at the the main issue that started Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I just want to jump in and say you can go back in our archive of this program, and we have an episode about uh, the formation and the history of SSDP. I believe the episode is called Youth Revolt Against the Drug War. It was a youth revolt because of uh, taking away student financial aid due to any uh, conviction for cannabis, and that was just unbelievable because these are loans. This is like really denying people a chance to get educated. And so you know, David Borden in, in 2001 was like, I want to use the tactics that you've been using for the anti-globalization movement to fight the drug war. And for, our number one target is Mark Souter, a congressman from Indiana. And I was like, well, let's get a caravan of people from all over the country and students from all over to show up at his town hall meetings and make it impossible whenever he tries to have a town hall meeting because people just interrupt him and, and he's in and bird dog him, you know, that's old fashioned bird dog him. And we did it and we did a whole media campaign around it. It got into, it got into Rolling Stone, you know, it was like it showed the students were doing something like and it actually cost him politically. I mean, it was on all the local TV stations he in his district because we gave them the footage. Like we went and filmed it and showed them the protests and we made it so easy for them that they just felt like they had to put it on the air. And then 30 days after 9-11, George Bush promulgated new rules that industrial hemp foods 
which were at the time a very cool new hemp food and hemp cosmetic sector was blowing up, were going to be banned, contraband, because they contain any amount of THC, any amount. But, you know, the Controlled Substances Act says that hemp is the stalks and the seed uh, and the oil and the cake of the plant, not the flowers. In Canada, they defined it as 0.3% THC in the living plant or less, and 10 parts per million in a food product or less. So there was already an international standard for what hemp was, and there was a very strong case to be made that these rules went beyond the Controlled Substances Act, that they had they were no longer exempting hemp as it is spelled out. David Brunner came to town looking for an activist to like wake people up about this issue, and it was a month after 9-11. Anyone who went through that period as an adult can remember that, you know, planes weren't flying. There was no other stories in the media. And here's this like hippie from the West Coast. And I'd been using his soap since like 99. So I knew who he was, but they weren't a big company. They were only selling like $4 million a year in soap. It wasn't like a huge company. It was a small business. He's taking what little profits they have. He's like, we're going to fight the DEA. We're going to sue the Hemp Industry Association. But we also need to have a street campaign. And I want you to lead that. I want you to organize that because you do this. And so we came up with an idea. And that was to do what we call the DEA Hemp Food Taste Test, where all the hemp food companies would donate food and we would bring it to the DEA offices all across the country, 50 offices in all, actually. And we would actually hand out hemp foods, invite the media and tell them they're banning nutritious food. They need to stop. Oh, and we had to like go undercover and pretend we were a vendor to get all the locations because they only advertised like four locations in the whole country. But we knew they had many field offices and we found these secret field offices that were located in shopping malls and storefronts, a butcher, like all kinds of businesses with a DEA office in the back, like the mafia themselves, you know? <laughs> and so we went around to these secret offices and brought local TV crews. Like, why are you banning our food? <laughs> so, and, and it, it just was positive press, positive press and all around the country. And it, I think it really disturbed the DEA that this was happening. Like they were getting this pushback. They tried to sneak it in under the auspices of national security, 9-11 stuff. And here it is. What are they doing with that? They're going after nutritious omega-3 rich food with rich in protein, more protein than eggs, okay? And not the kind of protein that's going to give you heart disease. So it's just like, wow, we got to fight this. And so we kept fighting and we kept doing political stunts. By 2005, we won the law. We won the lawsuit. DEA hemp food attempt to ban was struck down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And this was like a tremendous victory. Like we could fight the DEA and win on hemp. Now we really wanted to legalize LSD, uh, at least that's what that's what David Bronner would say. Okay, this is really about LSD. It's not about marijuana. People would say, "Do you really just want to legalize marijuana?" Don't you? And he would say, "No, LSD." Well, I think what's <laughs> great about this too is, you know, there's sometimes you know in political movements of of people with the same or similar goals and of good intention and good faith have this argument. Do we want to move incrementally within the system or do we want to shake the system's foundations through uh, nonviolent but confrontational street actions? And what this really shows is that you can do both at the same time because to, to say, can we have food that has 
one in 10,000 parts per million or whatever you said of THC in a bit is about the most incremental move you can make. Uh, but at the same time, you're raising that issue uh, through what became um, a, a signature move for you of these imaginative public confrontational uh, demonstrations and street actions. And that to me is really an encapsulation of how the issue of cannabis legalization and ending this war on weed has moved forward so much in 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 political years in a very uh, it feels like a long journey of course and particularly for anybody who's been on the getting arrested end of that it uh can't come quick enough but when we look at it in the context of other political issues uh particularly when they are very one-sided you know this as as you referenced um this wasn't like republicans versus democrats this was weed activists versus everyone what are some of the other um sort of uh, street actions and and political uh theater type campaigns that 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 stemmed from this around the same time we were locking ourselves to the gates of the white house we we would bring just a couple people at a time to do this and have like a rally but there'd always be a couple people get arrested the early 2000s uh we were in court a lot like we kind of shifted to a legal strategy and then we would have court events rallies outside the courthouse. We got bills introduced in multiple states on industrial hemp, North Dakota, California, uh, Vermont. Um, it was like, we were just pushing legislation wherever we could. So it was like a, a interesting period. I, I, I got serious about maybe making money on this too, by opening a hemp store in, in 2008 with Alan Amsterdam, who was a artisanal grower, who was the first American to own a coffee shop on in Amsterdam. And we decided we wanted to, as an activist project, bring back the head shop. See, Washington, D.C. had cracked down on all the head shops about 13 years earlier, and there hadn't been a head shop in D.C. all these years. Like, you got your shop shut down, you got raided, and you got charges for sale of drug paraphernalia if you tried to sell a bong. We consulted attorneys, and we came up with a plan to do, you know, for tobacco use only, having 18 and older back rooms who weren't exposing miners, and then having a hemp clothing store modeled after the Sacramento clothing store, Hemp in the Heartland. There were all these great hemp companies, hemp cosmetic companies, hemp clothing, hemp food. We built the store out of hemp wood. We got so much press before we even opened the store. The Washington Post had done a feature on us while we were building the store. First day we opened, we're doing $1,500 a day, then $2,000 a day, then $3,000 a day, and the store is a success. And I'm like, wow, I created a retail store. I'm actually making money on it. But it really put me out there in D.C., in a more public way. Now we have a venue. We started hosting medical cannabis talks in our venue. We started hosting general drug policy talks. And the whole time that we were open, we were being targeted by undercover police all the time. They realized that we were really tight on the language, that we had surveillance cameras with microphones, like they weren't going to be able to entrap us. We even hired a former Navy SEAL to like out this DEA agent that we suspected was snooping around. And eventually we he, he gave up. And around this time, they were like, we're going to go back to medical cannabis. And the budget rider that had been put there by Bob Barr, that was the congressman, was preventing us from having medical cannabis for 12 years. He then became a lobbyist for the Marijuana Policy Project as after he retired. So the guy who was blocking us then became our lobbyist. This is crazy. And, and then he went and lobbied and he got the Republicans to remove it. He made like, I don't know, $100,000 for doing that. 
It's like a shakedown. I never liked that. So <laughs> uh, that's a really nice medical cannabis plant you got there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So DC's opening up, and we have the only real head shop in the city where it's actually cannabis culture and we're a part of the culture. And we're becoming influential in local politics. Like our store is having events with politicians. We're on the news a lot. People like us, they're proud of us. Like we're a homegrown, it was called Capital Hemp. You know, it's like a homegrown thing. Time goes on, everything's great. And then late 2011, my store, it, both stores are raided with, by like 36 police officers, Metropolitan Police Department, the local police. It takes them about 10 hours per store to empty everything because all the pipes, all the rolling papers, and we had a million dollars worth of inventory. It was a gorgeous store. They broke a lot of it. It was tough. They arrested uh, six of our employees who were on staff working when these raids happened. We bailed them out. We then had warrants for our arrest. We turned ourselves in. I was nearly choked to death by one of the federal marshals in the courthouse when I refused to give my urine. And I caught everyone in the area. I was like, don't give your urine. And I got this one guy to throw his urine at him. And because I, when I go to jail, it's time to organize. You know, like I, I like to organize people in jail. I like to give people a question. And they were like forcing us to give up some rights. And you don't have to give your urine. You're going to have to give your urine to get out of jail, though. That's the truth. But if you want to like say, I don't want to give it, you don't have to give it. And they were not telling people that they were telling them they had to give it. And I was like, that's a lie. And you're lying to people here. And then I start telling the federal marshals. So you went to college to collect urine. That's what that's your idea of a criminal justice career. I was mean. And uh, they got mean by choking me. <laughs> Do you think that uh, the the action you took in 2009 when you, you planted hemp seeds on the front lawn of the DEA might have made you a bit of a target? And, and, and what are your memories from that day? <laughs> I do remember my business partner saying, you know, we don't have to provoke them. <laughs> but but he he was with it. He he loved it. He's still an activist too to this day. But it was kind of like we're planting hemp seeds in your front lawn. We're getting arrested and it was Arlington though. It was a different jurisdiction technically. You know, we paid the fines. We didn't fight the charges. It was a trespassing charge. But getting back to what happened in DC in 2011 and 2012, we, we basically went through like a nine-month negotiation with a U.S. attorney, and eventually we agreed to close both of our stores in exchange for all of our merchandise being returned, which is pretty wild because like every one of these beautiful hand-blown American-made glass bongs had property stickers, and it was like Metropolitan Police Department with their logo. And those were like easy to sell. People wanted this. They wanted them. <laughs> They're like, you. I read about you guys. Like, I want one of those. Like, it was like, it was, we, we managed to jujitsu it into, we're going to get cash. Because we had about $150,000 in legal bills. We paid all of our employees' legal bills. In the end, we never even went bankrupt. In fact, the business is still open to this day. But even though we closed both stores, we went online. We put a store in Maryland. I got out of the business around this time, though. I told my partner, I was like, you make me a minority partner, buy me out. I'm going to legalize marijuana. I, I just was like, I'm going to do it. Like that was the mentality. So when people say, oh, it's all ego. Well, yes, there's definitely ego putting together a ballot initiative that everyone in the world's telling you can't be done, won't work. They'll just overturn it. Don't do it. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. And I was like, there's nothing left to do. 
you know, we had this little gray area with our, with our business and the culture was existing in a gray area. Now they're attacking us. No, it's time for us to change the laws. We were at 6,600 arrests a year that year for cannabis. That's more than 1% of the population of the District of Columbia was getting arrested annually. I want that to sink in. Like, it was the worst marijuana arrest rate in the world. You, I challenge you to find another place that had a higher arrest rate for cannabis. It was here, the District of Columbia. And 95% of the people were poor black people that were getting arrested. And I'm, I'm angry about it because it went on for so long and we had so many leaders that could have done something about it and just didn't do anything. In 2012, Colorado had legalized cannabis. So here we are in, in uh, 2012 and I'm losing everything. My business is gone. And it's like, what else is there to do except do what they just did in Colorado? So in 2013, we start getting organized. We wanted to just legalize it. We wanted to have home cultivation, personal possession, sharing rights, that's what we want. And since we can't put businesses on the ballot because we can't spend money with ballot initiatives in, in D.C., we couldn't actually propose a tax and regulate system, which was actually kind of great because it was just about rights of the individual. And having the right to grow cannabis, two people per household, that's 12 plants per house, that's pretty generous. That's almost enough to start a micro business. You know what I mean? So a lot of places where they're complaining, they're just like jumping into like big business right off out of the gate. And there's no way for a small person, small business person, or just a regular person to get into it. What we created was there's no business, but small, small time people can do it. And you can do things that don't involve cash legally. You can gift it legally. You can give it to a handyman who comes to your house in exchange, and instead of paying him if he accepts it. Like there's lots of things you could do. That law was written by me and Nick Schiller and Alan Amsterdam with the help of a lawyer, a lawyer named Joe Sandler. We got it through the Board of Elections. It was hard. We went and collected, we had to collect like 60,000 signatures. And I thought I knew what, I thought I could do it. I thought I knew everything about it. I had a lot of friends in that in that space, but we didn't know everything, and it was really hard, and we were failing at times. And I was giving weekly updates to the public how we're doing. By the third week, I just came out and said we may not make it, and it was like really important to be truthful. I was just projecting outwards, like, all right, if we keep this rate, we're not going to make it. Like we have to dramatically increase what we're doing, and. I started reading Sun Tzu. I started like thinking more like a general because I was running this thing and I, I have to like think about the whole campaign. What am I missing? And it was all about numbers. It was all about people. I need more people, more people and train more people, more people. Just keep going until you solve the problem, until you actually are beating your targets on the signature collection. And uh, it came down to the wire, you know, it came down to the final week. So anyway, it makes the ballot. And then I realized it's that that's not the only fight. Like we have to go back to the council if it passes and they, they might overturn it. So I have to go make friends with all the council members. So I start giving money, like little donations and going to all these events for all the people running for office. One by one, I'm getting them to pledge not to overturn it, but it was the mayor's race that was really key. And our current mayor, Mayor Bowser, this was her first time running. She's down on her third term. We had a meeting that was like high profile in a coffee shop, lots of ears in the room, but just me, her, and her campaign manager. I basically was the marijuana guy. Uh, you know, there was a lot, everyone knew me from the store raid. You? <laughs> everyone knew me from the ballot initiative. I said to her, I was like, I need to know your position. Will you, will you uphold the initiative if it passes? She says, I'll absolutely uphold it. And I'm like tweeting it out and it's making news. She's in a tight race against an incumbent mayor, Vincent Gray, who raided my stores and went on television and bragged about it. You know, he was bragging about how we're cracking down on rolling papers. 
You know, it's like, it's like, fuck you, you know? <laughs> so, so this guy cracked down on rolling papers, had, he, even though he's African-American and he's from Ward 7, he had the highest number of Ward 7 residents arrested for marijuana in a year. And he's like somehow reelected. You know, I don't understand. So I started sharing this information and I started telling people in the cannabis community, we really need to get Bowser in and we need to get out the guy who's attacking us and will never work with us and get someone in there who might work with us and who said she'll defend the initiative if it passes on the same ballot. Lo and behold, uh, she won by a slim margin. It went from you're afraid your door is going to be broken down for growing a few plants to people are inviting press into their house and showing them their formerly illegal grows are now legal, like literally the day after it became law. And a week after it became law, the mayor issued me special license plates. In DC, we have something called low tags. And the first thousand numbers on the license plate from one to a thousand are assigned to friends of the mayor. So if you see a low number, you know they're friends of the mayor and someone important. Well, she gave me 420. She just just issued it. That made the news. That was like in the news. And like everybody wanted to see it. So once it became law, suddenly paranoia set in that the Republicans in Congress were going to overturn it and they had the votes to do it. And I was like, what are we going to do? You know, so I started thinking creatively again. And I was like, we need to build something on the lawn of the Capitol that we can lock ourselves to it and make the point that we're not going to go down without a fight. They're just gonna, we're going to go get arrested. And if we have to stay here night and day for weeks and weeks, we will. I had a libertarian friend who suggested building a liberty pole, which I didn't know what it was. But now I'm like obsessed with liberty poles and uh, Phrygian caps, which is this hat I'm wearing. We built one on the, on the mall on tax day in 2015, around the time that the Republican Congress people were saying they were going to overturn it. A couple of us locked ourselves to it. We went there at 420 in the morning. We set up a bonfire. We had no permit. We were on the lawn of the Capitol for two and a half hours before the SWAT team showed up. But when the SWAT team came and they surrounded us, and there was like maybe a 30 of us that were holding that space, we told them, before you take action, you better remember what this poll means. And they're like, we don't know what that poll means. And I was like, go look on the seal of the U.S. Army or the seal of the U.S. Senate, because you're going to find this hat and this poll on, on them. And they went and looked, and they came back from the U.S. Army seal shocked. Like, I never knew that was there. I want to know all about it. So these SWAT team guys, who some of them were former army, I explained to them the revolutionary nature of it and how it goes back to the American Revolution. And this is how the U.S. Army was formed. And if you're going to overturn the will of the people here, if you're not going to respect an election that 70% of the public said they want a lot of change, and you're just going to flip it back, if this body does this, I'm talking about Congress, not the police officer, if they're, if they're going to overturn it, then we're going to have to have a revolution. Like, that's there's nothing left. Like, there's nothing to this for us. This doesn't work for us. And we're justified to form a new army. So it worked. They didn't overturn it. <laughs> and good thing, apparently. And, and you know, we often hear about this slippery slope argument or this uh, gateway argument with, oh, weed and then what? But here the argument is... Once you get comfortable with ignoring and overturning the clear, documented will of the people through direct voting, this is not 
a, a bill that was passed by a legislative body that then chose to pass a new bill. This is the people directly voting for something, the most vital and the most important function of a democracy. And and then I know that uh, I, I, I do want to kind of leave it off with one last great moment in weed history, which is the uh, free joints on Capitol Hill action brings every thread of this uh, together and, and certainly uh, celebrates a great moment in, in cannabis history for you personally and, and, and for the country. We did it at Trump's inauguration. We actually gave away 10,000 joints as a community. Uh, we've organized numerous seed shares and joint shares in Washington, D.C. because, well, it was legal to do so and it was a way to get attention for the cause. Uh, we did them in front of the White House. We had something called March of the Clones, where everyone dressed up in Star Wars regalia and we marched around with clone plants and we gave away clones. We're really into sharing. I think the real benefit of legalization is not making money, uh, not increased tax revenue. It's individual consumers spending a lot less on cannabis. The home grow movement is just that. It's how you can go from, you could reduce your cannabis budget by 90% if you just grow it at home. You know, in the coming years after legalization, we spent a lot of time like fighting for, you know, re removing federal housing rules on cannabis, like getting those changed. And we got a bill introduced in Congress through Eleanor Holmes Norton, our delegate. And now that's been worked into the MORE Act. You know, I've continued to like be an advocate, but I did quit smoking. And I wanted to make sure I said this. I, I've come to the conclusion that smoking cannabis is actually harmful to people's health. I used to love rolling joints. I would roll 10 joints a day for myself. Now I use the Storks and Bickle. It's called a Mighty Plus. It's a vaporizer. It's the only one that's ever been tested actually by a medical authority. And it was tested in Europe, made in Germany. I'm not working for them. I don't sell them. But I... I you know, I still work for Dr. Bronner's actually, and we're working a, a lot more on psychedelics and also reforming the electoral system. Everything we had learned from the cannabis fight was so valuable because it led us to doing better signature collection for minimum wage was the next one. We passed two minimum wage raises through ballot initiatives since since we did uh, Initiative 71 in 2014. We did plant medicines in 2020. We decriminalized ayahuasca, mescaline, uh, psilocybin and I and ibogaine or iboga here in the District of Columbia in 2020, and it passed by 76 <laughs> percent, more than cannabis. But I will be fighting for cannabis probably to the day I die. The world I want to see in cannabis now, I'm my fight increasingly is with the business interests. I want farmers markets. I want every single person to have the legal right to sell cannabis. And maybe that'll be the next ballot initiative we do. Well, I'm going to say on behalf of everyone listening to this podcast, I know, unless maybe there's a narc or two, and fuck you, uh, <laughs> we give you our full-hearted appreciation for all of these efforts over so many years for uh, sparking the imagination and the inspiration for people to fight for their own rights, for leading these efforts, for changing the facts on the ground. And, you know, there, there's really two points to great moments in weed history. One is to make sure that we document this history so that people understand where we came from and how we got to where we are now. This moment where many, many possibilities seem so bright and yet 
in so many places, change still has not come. And that gets to the other point of this podcast, which is I am hoping that these transmissions out into the world inspire a new generation of people to take up this fight. If you are listening to this and you are saying, gosh, what a ride. You know, what a feeling it must be to be a part of this movement. Well, please join this movement. Please bring your energy to it. Please create great moments in weed history in your own life, in your own community, and that will uh, ripple out into the world. Adam, Thank you so, so much for joining us today, for sharing your story, and uh, for bringing a much weedier world into existence. Hey, I want to thank you for having me. And this was a great moment in weed history behind me. It's the Washington Monument with a sculpture of a, it actually was a, a lotus flower that turned into a jail cell. And inside this jail cell was thousands of people's court documents from their cannabis arrests that we burned. Thousands of people came to celebrate the implementation of legalization in Washington, D.C. This was in 2015. But I just wanted to show this great moment for you. Right on. And right. Please, <laughs> please go uh, visit us on uh, all the socials that we do, and we'll post that image. And Adam, I look forward to uh, seeing what you do next and uh, getting to share a sesh with you in real life in the near future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.